Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Smart Cities Chronicles, your podcast for everything Smart Cities action and investment and outcomes. Uh, episode 12 coming to you. And this episode is our second uh, Smart Cities Quick Take. This is uh, a series of episodes where we dive into a couple of uh, technical uh, process issues um, that we believe are potential barriers or blockers um, to smart cities action and investment. Um, and today we're going to be discussing all things privacy. And joining me uh, for this quick take um, is Frith Tweedy from EY in New Zealand. Frith, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to join you to have a discussion about this. I, I have to first off the block. I have to say I don't necessarily see privacy as a blocker or a barrier, but I'm sure we will get to that. <laughs> no, that, that, that's exactly right. That's good. That's good. Um, Frith, um, let's let, let's sort of kick off with a bit of uh, an intro for you to our listeners. Now you are digital law leader at EY, based out of Auckland in New Zealand. What does a digital law leader do? <laughs> so digital law is, I guess, naming it that is really a response to the market. Obviously, there's a, a huge focus on digital transformation for many of our clients. So we really bring together um, what can be a, a diverse set of disciplines in a typical law firm. So we cover privacy, we cover IP, we cover IT, and we cover what we call customer experience, which is things like consumer protection, marketing law, everything that feeds into, for example, um, the legal requirements around an app, you know, from the build through to terms and conditions um, and all those kinds of things. So it's a, it's a fascinating area um, and one that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm certainly passionate about it with you. I share that because um, I, I've got so many mixed emotions around, around it. So I, I think I'm going to uh, equally learn as, as much from this as, as our listeners. Um, Frith, I'd like to kick off with, um, I'm actually quoting you, quoting uh, Elizabeth Denham, uh, the UK Information Commissioner. You, you, you put out a, a really lovely LinkedIn post, I think just before Christmas, which is your favourite quotes of the year of 2018, which was a big year for privacy. Um, and, that, and that quote was, you know, we will look back at 2018 as, a pivot, as pivotal in public awareness, a year when people sat up and took notice of the potential of their personal information. Um, talk us through that quote and, and what that means for you in the context of our conversation as a, as a bit of a kickstarter today. Sure. So, yeah, 2018 was a huge year uh, for privacy and really bringing um, privacy considerations to public consciousness. So the key drivers in that were really a large number, a growing number, I guess, of really huge data breaches. So we had Equifax, then um, this year we, we had Cathay Pacific, we had um, Marriott Hotels, and of course we had uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which was very um, closely followed by the introduction of GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is uh, a big new piece of privacy legislation out of Europe, which in fact, impacts organizations potentially around the world who have dealings with Europe. So it, it spreads its tentacles far and wide. And GDPR really will hopefully um, manage some of the types of risks that we saw play out 
in the Cambridge Analytica situation. It introduces some pretty onerous obligations on organisations and some very large fines um, for breaches, which is not something we've tended to see in terms of privacy law. So people probably have heard that fines can be up to 20 million euros or 4% of global annual turnover, whichever is greater. So for the big tech companies um, that tend to be in the public spotlight at the moment, you know, that, that can be billions of dollars. And in fact, just today, uh, it was announced that the French uh, data protection regulator has fined Google 20, sorry, 50 million euros um, for various breaches of GDPR. And Elizabeth Denham actually spoke at an international privacy forum in Wellington at the end of last year, which is where she made that comment that you just quoted. And she said that we could certainly expect to start to see a lot of those big fines coming through because although GDPR came in on the 25th of May last year, I guess it takes a bit of time to you know, do the thorough investigation and be in a position to, to levy those large fines. That, that um, just, just on that, that, that's an incredible um, rapid pace to sort of, I mean, I'm surprised it's happened so quickly since the introduction. Does that does that surprise you, or, or am I just? Um, well, I mean, there are all sorts of privacy activist groups in the in Europe who, you know, I think, on the 26th of May, filed a whole mm. lot of claims against Google, Facebook, um, Spotify, I think Amazon as well. So, and and because you know this was shortly after Cambridge Analytica, and even. Besides, everyone in the privacy world knows that there's there's a lot going on that that's unlikely to really satisfy GDPR. Um, I think for those of us who are active in this world, we've been waiting, really waiting on tenterhooks to see what some of the decisions would be and what the priority focus areas are for the regulators. Um, so with Google today, it's been around consent and trans transparency, both of which are really valid considerations in a smart cities context as well. Yeah, okay. Um, so let, let's sort of step back for a moment and set this conversation up. I, I, I don't know where it's going to go. I think I've, I've got some ideas. But um, I um, we, we had a, a session at Smart Cities Week Australia last October and it was, it was sort of called something like, you know, do we have a, a smart cities social contract or social license with the community? Um, you're involved in that session. Um, just, just give us a, a sort of a, a 101 there, uh, a quick view from you, Frith, on um, this idea of the social licence with the community around smart cities and um, touch on the role of privacy and trust and how, how significant that is in terms of building that social licence. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean... I guess to answer the first part of your question, that, that social license in a smart cities context is really important, I think. Um, you know, you want to take your community on the journey with you. You want them to be engaged and see that the value of, of what's happening. And so transparency is really key in that. And contrary to what a lot of people think, privacy law and privacy, it, it's not about secrecy. In fact, transparency is a, is a really significant part of privacy. And so I think cities that are wanting to become smarter really need to take that, um, the considerations of transparency and things like consent to heart because if you 
don't um, and if there are large data breaches, for example, you really do risk losing that um, trust because when people trust that their data will be used as they've agreed and, ex and they, they accept that enough value will be created, they're much more likely to be comfortable with that usage. Um, in terms of privacy, I, I mean, I certainly see privacy as a key player in that concept of trust. Um, and, you know, I, given how data-driven the smart cities concept is, how fundamental IoT is in a smart cities context, you know, I, I really did expect at Smart Cities Week to see more discussion on privacy and really I think I was probably the only person banging on about it. <laughs> it's, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, it, it, it sort of it leads me to a question of, you know, is the level of trust getting getting better or worse? Um, mm. Because at Smart Cities Week, we had about half, just 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 under half of the delegates were, uh, you know, government representatives, um, and I don't know. Maybe there's a sense that sort of everything's sort of hunky dory, maybe. But then when I when I have a conversation with my mother, who freaks out about all of this, you know, there's very much. Uh, an element of citizens really concerned because mm. they they certainly sort of see a, see a lot of popular media stories around Cambridge Analytica and other things. So, do, do you think that level of trust with the community is has been getting better or worse or unchanged? I mean, I think there's there's still a degree of apathy in terms of under, knowing what's happening with people, knowing what's happening with their data. But I do think you know, as we discussed last year, was a significant year, and I think those various factors that we discussed have really raised the profile of the value of people's personal information and how it's being used by a lot of organisations without people really understanding the extent uh, and the way in which it's used. And so it's it's raised consumer awareness and it's also raised their expectations. Even, you know, a, a, you know I can't imagine that any or many uh, cities in this part of the world will have to deal with GDPR issues. But as people start to get used to GDPR levels of um, data governance and so on through their dealings with the big multinationals, their expectations will rise locally as well. And, and we're already starting to see other laws around the world picking up um, from GDPR. California has introduced um, legislation that's that picks up on aspects of GDPR. Um, Australia got mandatory data breach notification last year and New Zealand's due to get it this year. So I think people, I think the argument that people don't care anymore or that privacy is dead has been well and truly quashed. Mm. Um, and I'm actually just looking at some data here from the 2018 Unisys Security Index, so focusing just on the, the narrower view of security rather than the wider view of privacy. And, you know, this is saying that 47% um, of New Zealanders and 52% of Australians say that... Um, they have security concerns. Um, that's the number one barrier to their use, for example, of smartwatches. And you know, top three barriers to sharing personal information with business and government via IoT are that are data security concerns, not a compelling enough reason, or don't want that organisation to have this data. I mean, those are those are that's essentially fifty percent of the population calling out these concerns. And I think they need to be listened to. The good news is that they can be addressed. 
Um, it's not, you know, it's not privacy and security issues are not a barrier. They, they should be treated as an enabler to doing things properly and getting the best results for everyone, including the community, which you know, who are at the heart of smart cities, right? Yeah, absolutely. And let's just continue with the community for a moment. Do you think that those statistics are fascinating? I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a, you know, I'm a smart cities guy and I think I'm half educated about some of these things, but, and I'm sitting here with my, uh, my uh, Apple watch around my wrist and I, I, I have never thought, to, and it's a generation one, so it's time for an upgrade, but I have a, I've never thought once at all until you just mentioned it, that that watch is part of a system of privacy, you know, and, and, and concern. So th- those stats are really interesting. I, I wonder, I had a friend who, um, uh, who left Facebook this year in terms of leaving Facebook as a, as a user, not the, not, not a company employee, but, um, is there a sense, uh, is there a sense that, um, you know, if I, if I, if I get off Facebook, shut down my account, all is good. How, how much of this is a big, a, a citizen, big corporate kind of issue? You know, it, it's, it's Apple and Facebook, right? You know, they're the, mm. they're the bad guys out there. Well, they, it, I mean, it's uh, interesting to see how, um, <sighs> the perception of those companies has changed. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that um, we we thought that they were the great upstarts challenging the status quo, bringing fresh ideas. I mean, remember when Google's motto was don't be evil. (laughs) That one, right? And in fact, I was just at my parents' place on the weekend and there was an old Vanity Fair lying around that had Mark Zuckerberg on the cover and it was sort of extolling his virtues. 2015, you know, that's not that long ago. And and, and look how things have changed. So Mm. I think people are more suspicious because they have seen how this data is used. I mean, when you look at the US elections, the fact that that kind of micro-targeting of users that was facilitated by you know the way facebook operates enabled you know russian interference and you know there are examples of micro-targeting of african-american um african-americans not to vote so they were able to really segment the the groups of people and understand their motivations and then serve up ads that were things like you know no one represents black people you know why bother voting i mean Mm. when we're starting to sort of yeah Middle with democratic processes. That's. I think we've all got to be concerned. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm starting to get concerned. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, so just back to the trust issue, Frith, and and Facebook. So, before the Cambridge Analytica incident, is it fair to say that we kind of trusted Facebook? So, I want to go back to this this powerful issue of trust, you know, just put aside for the moment rules, regulation, um, you know, solutions and strategies in place to protect trust. Let's talk about uh, to, to protect privacy. Um, but just the idea of trust, you know, real or perceived, um, that because regardless of what you're doing, if people trust you, is that going to sort of, that, that'll trump privacy every day of the week. And I don't mean capital T Trump, but you know, that, that will, as long as you've got that trust there, you know, you could probably still get away with things, right? Trust is very interesting. Yes. But I think you'll also lose trust if you ignore privacy, if you're not transparent, if you have 
opaque algorithms that produce, you know, concerning results. I mean, trust, trust is slow to build and quick to erode, right? Mm. So I, I think that organizations need to front foot this. They need to communicate clearly. They need to show, not just tell, because I think consumers are, you know, we we're used to looking past what we're told and, and wanting some proof. It's not just kind of talking up a storm about how great you are. Um, I mean, I think trust can also be built by providing a really great, easy service. And, and, you know, that convenience factor is pretty compelling. But I think if you start to think that that's all that goes into trust and brand goodwill and so on, then, you know, it can turn very quickly as we've seen with Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a very emotive topic and there's, there's certainly genuine concerns. Um, so, so here's an interesting and direct question to you, Frith. Should the community be worried about privacy? Um, I think they need to take an interest in it so that they can challenge um, organizations to make sure they're doing the right thing. I mean, privacy laws are in place to provide a level of protection, but I think um, if people kind of sit back and are apathetic, then it's, um, it's easy for those issues, easier for those issues to be ignored. Um, I think, I think we're seeing more and more that some of the concerns that play out in the media is reporting them and I think people are starting to pick up on them. So yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there should be some concern because a lot of organizations think they've nailed privacy and they really haven't. They're adopting quite a compliance based approach, just sort of tick box. Yep. That's all fine. Rather than fundamentally thinking, well, what does this mean for our users? Um, you know, and, and quite fundamental concepts like data governance, um, you know, that, that comes through under GDPR that you really need to have your data in order to minimize data breaches, for example. Mm. But do it, that, that stuff is all good hygiene as well. I mean, as we move increasingly towards AI, if you don't have your data in order, then you're not going to be able to extract the value that you want. You're going to spend a whole lot of time trying to sort out your data. So there's a lot of um, good aspects to this. I mean, I, I tend to wonder, you know, in a smart cities context, if privacy doesn't get, um, I guess the profile that it, that it should um, is perhaps because we're not always talking about personal information in a smart cities context. You know, it might be data about water quality or, or stuff that's non-personal. And so privacy doesn't, crop up in those situations it's only when you're doing dealing with personal information but you are dealing with a lot of personal information in smart cities and you know with sensors everywhere collecting information you know potentially facial recognition free wi-fi is is only free because you've shared your personal information um that those aspects need to be considered and we are seeing more cities do that, you know, for example, appointing a chief privacy officer. They've done that in Seattle and I believe in New York City as well. So having someone who's responsible and is an advocate for privacy, I think is, is very important because it enables a city to focus on something like privacy by design, which is the idea that you think about privacy upfront when you're designing a particular 
product or service. And it means that it's those considerations are built into the, the design rather than being an afterthought because, you know, the number of times I've had, you know, particularly when I've worked in an in-house context, people come up to me, you know, oh, this is due to go live in two days, you know, can you just kind of sign it off and you have a look and you're like, oh, there's a whole lot of issues in here. If, you'd, if we talked about this earlier, we could have, we could have worked around them and they wouldn't have been roadblocks. So I think mm. that early focus and early engagement really, really pays off. I, uh, I just want to tap into that a little bit more um, with, uh, or, or in the context of, of cameras uh, mm. and analytics. Um, there's little, little tiny sensors that can sense sort of anything, humidity, you know, vibration, you know, IoT is an absolutely um, fascinating world mm. in terms of what we can sense and the data that we can gather. Um, cameras, cameras bring a bring a different element to this, don't they? Because there's a real sense of someone's watching. Are you are you sort of seeing or hearing? Uh, I'm, I'm certainly seeing and hearing a lot more. Um, use of cameras because the analytics that you can get from it is quite phenomenal. But what are you seeing and hearing around cameras and privacy and concern or otherwise? Yeah. I, I mean, I think facial recognition and cameras and so on can be quite emotive and it certainly makes headlines and, you know, the media are quite keen to report on it. You know, there is value in that data, but you are getting a lot of insight into people's activities and it, and it almost goes to that, you know, that traditional concept of privacy in terms of people seeing what you're doing. I guess at one extreme, you know, we've got what's going on in China with their social credit system, and that's heavily reliant on facial recognition. Um, you know, they, they're recording people. Um, they even have, you know, their police have special glasses with facial recognition software. Um, they have robotic doves that fly around and film people and, um, 200 million surveillance cameras apparently all recording what people are up to so that um, the, the people can be managed essentially so the social credit system automatically generates ratings for every Chinese citizen um, based on whether they're considered trustworthy so if you're if, if a camera captures you jaywalking then they'll have often big screens that have display photos of jaywalkers and those people will then lose points in the social credit system and once you've lost enough points that you go on a blacklist which means that you are sort of lower tier citizen you can't access um you know you can't travel first class you've got to travel on the slowest train um you can't access you have it takes you longer to get through airport security um, there's all sorts of implications and these people end up being quite ostracized. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's fascinating and horrifying in equal measure. I mean, apparently if you call someone who's on the blacklist, there's an automated response that sort of sends out a sort of foghorn sound that then a, um, an automated recording tells you that this person is not to be trusted. And so the, <laughs> they are really 1984 all over again <laughs> so, yeah. and that's yeah. very extreme you know that's what's happening in China I'm not suggesting for a moment that that's that's going to be happening here but that's where it can go and I guess if if individuals don't have visibility of what's happening with that data then 
who knows anything could be happening so mm. my suggestion would be that if there is a genuine use case for facial recognition and cctv and so on then it's about again it goes back to transparency letting people know why you're doing that why you're capturing that information what it's being used for and giving people the ability to access and correct information because when it's sort of in an opaque black box type situation and this is where you can get into sort of the algorithms and ai and so on if you can't understand why a particular decision has been made then mm. you can't challenge that it's been made on the basis of incorrect facts and you know there's a whole load of examples out there of where you know there've been factual errors made and, and you know some really quite significant results for people even i think in the uk they were using facial recognition to pick people out at a football game so i can't remember the exact scenario but it turns out that they were the false positives were way higher than was you know statistically reasonable so i think we just need to proceed with a bit of caution it's easy to get caught up in all the excitement of what some of these new technologies can deliver and they can deliver amazing benefits i, I wouldn't want anyone to think that i'm not saying they can but we just need to think um up front about some of some of the implications and particularly some of the unintended consequences and try and manage those. Yeah, well, you're certainly really uh, getting into the, the sort of space of ethics there and, and I'll come on to that in a moment, but just back to sort of China, the, well, that China example that you, uh, you shared, Frith, and I want to talk about sort of culture for mm. a moment. For a moment. Um, I've got two teenage daughters and their devices are welded into their hand. Um, and I can only imagine the number of check boxes they're clicking, which says, yes, I accept. Um, what, what is trading privacy for benefits? I suppose that's what I'm trying to understand because um, we're obviously giving away an element of, of, you know, privacy and information when, when we, when we check that box. Um, I imagine that if half of the teenagers out there are of the same sort of mind as, as my kids, you know, we've got a, a generation that's coming through that is potentially going to have a very different view on this issue than, you know, others that are, are sort of in the community at the moment. Talk to us about culture, age, trading privacy, you know, for the benefits that come with it uh, and what you're sort of seeing and hearing. Mm. Well, I I'm assuming you're suggesting that younger people are sort of happy, happier to trade their privacy, but I'm actually seeing quite the opposite often. Um, I think younger people often, you know, they've grown up as digital natives, so they have they have more of an understanding of how their data is used. And I think there's a fundamental difference between sharing a very um, curated version of your life on social media compared to, say, for example, a whole lot of IoT sensors collecting information about you as you move around a city. So, I, And I think, I think younger people get that distinction. In terms of the terms and conditions that we all sign up to, you know, the, they're very long, right? Who actually reads them? I'm a lawyer. I don't read them. They're, they're, you just want to get on and, and get done. And this is one of the things that GDPR tries to 
focus on is that where you are consenting, that it has to be true informed consent that's not bundled with other services. And, and this is where I think we'll see some, some more decisions coming out under GDPR. But you know, the reality is we're confronted with so many terms and conditions mm. every day. And, and someone did a study and, you know, it, it would have taken sort of weeks to read um, all of the terms and conditions that we regularly encounter, I think you know, in a day or something, I can't remember the exact stats, but it was, you know, it's just not feasible. So I think we need to look at a different way of communicating that information, you know, point in time consents and communication of information and, and just letting people understand quite how, how this information is being used. And I, I guess the media has a role to play in, in sort of shining a light on some of those activities. Because I think, you know, as we've touched on already, I think most people haven't really understood quite what's going on behind the scenes with their data use. And only the other day, I mean, Tim Cook from Apple was talking about you know, what he described as the shadowy world of data brokers. These are massive organizations trading in data that most people have never heard of. Um, so I think, you know, I was talking to um, someone on my team just now. She's she's 26. Um, she, she said that you know, in touch with the voice of youth, that um, <laughs> was saying that, that yeah, she, she absolutely her and her friends and wider, you know, because she, you know, she's recently well informed on this stuff. But they're very aware of these issues. Mm. So I, I'm not mm. sure that people aren't anymore. Yeah, it was interesting. Just going back to terms and conditions you mentioned, uh, it was late last year that. Um, it was the first time I ever read some terms and conditions. I, I confess, I was in the Qantas Club in Sydney. And of course, the first thing you want to do is just get onto Wi-Fi, right? Because you've got to check email and do a few things. And I, before I clicked the box, I decided to start reading the terms and conditions. And the first one, number one, don't quote me, but it was something like, um, just letting you know that we're going to record every move you make on your, on your screen in terms of browsing history and things like that. Um, the question that that raises for me is, you know, whilst there's terms and conditions and data is going to be collected, I think to myself, are they really going to use that? I mean, there just must be tsunamis of data coming into places. Is, is there any sense of how much of all this data that's collected is, is actually used? I know that's a tough question, but... Yeah, well, I guess the, the answer to that is really well, AI will facilitate that. I mean, yeah, I think... I think there's been to date a sort of massive data land grab, you know, data is the new oil, let's get as much of it as we can. And I think people often haven't really had the skills or knowledge of how to optimize that data, but with AI coming, you know, they will, and AI is really driven by large volumes of data. But one of the, the key concepts of GDPR and privacy law generally is, is data minimization. Only collect as much as you need. Mm. You don't need if you don't need it, why collect it? That just yeah. increases your risk. You know, if you have a data breach, you've got that much more data to worry about. Um, so I, I, I would hope that we would start to see that starting to resonate and, um, and less kind of extensive, unnecessary collection. But I mean, it's not just, it's not just whoever's collecting it in the first instance that is an issue it's also who has access to it and you know we saw that with Cambridge Analytica with you know some seemingly quite random entities getting access to all this data and in a smart cities context you know it's really important that um, 
there's good due diligence with vendors that you you really look into some of their um, security and privacy processes and protections that you've got appropriate contractual protections in place that you're following up and and monitoring what they're doing and, and auditing from time to time and and interestingly under GDPR which you know is really gold standard for a lot of this stuff that actually requires um, what they call data controllers to um, put certain uh, mandatory clauses in contracts with data processes so which will often be vendors they have to monitor they have to audit so um, and I, I very much see that that will flow out globally because you know for the multinationals that are subject to that in Europe they will then start to you know for efficiency reasons roll that out sort of on, on a global basis so I would hope that um, that side of things will start to be managed a little bit better. So Frith, the average city out there, the local government organisation that's sort of embarking on a smart cities journey, you know, and, and if I'm to run sort of, you know, the pencil across, you know, half a dozen of them, you know, that there's some common themes and strategies and solutions that sort of apply, you know, there's a bit of IoT here, we're going to do some um, some you know, data analytics, open data stuff there. Um, they're, they're really starting to sort of um, advance an agenda and action and investment that's going to sort of result in, in more data coming in. Is there, the question is, is there a, 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 a good starting point in terms of a playbook or a standard or something else that exists that... Can, you can start getting your head around sort of, you know, privacy 101 for the smart city. What, what, what's on your shelf that you sort of recommend? In terms of generally or an actual reference, piece of reference material? Well, uh, a piece of reference material. Mm. Is, is there, well, I mean, I guess that the starting point is the law. Um, you, you can't really ignore that. Ethics can, can probably be ignored, but the, the law can't. Um, so, that's that's entry level stuff in terms of uh, compliance with the Privacy Act, both in Australia and New Zealand. But above and beyond that, I think there are some really useful tools. Um, privacy by design, I touched on before. So thinking about privacy upfront, designing it into what you're doing. Privacy impact assessments. So um, getting people to do a review of of a new tool or system before it goes live to understand how privacy will be affected. Is, is um, that a, is that a thing? Is it privacy impact yeah, assessment? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those are those are really useful tools. I mean, if you nail those two things, you're probably mm -hmm. a good way there. Um, it, it goes through and looks at what's going on and and, and how individuals are affected, how vendors are involved, um, and it gives you a really good view of the risks. And the beauty of knowing what the risks are up front is that, you know, you may choose that they're not so big that it, you know, has any particular impact and that you're willing to accept those risks, but it enables informed informed decision-making, mm. um, which you just don't have if you're, you're blindly proceeding and then find that something goes wrong further down the track. Mm. Um, you know, a, a recurring theme in this conversation is, is the importance of transparency to drive trust. So communicating what you're doing, uh, you know, I think we haven't mentioned um, Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalks Lab, but that's been a, a great example of where concerns over a lack of transparency have, have really played out in the public arena. So 
um, sidewalk layers. I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking um, to the to those who are familiar with this, but if there's anyone who's not, you know, sidewalk lab is um, Google is or Alphabet is a parent company. They have done a deal um, with um, Toronto to create this sort of smart city precinct, um, and you know, there've been real concerns about privacy, about transparency, about IP ownership, and you get into concerns around the sort of public-private partnerships, which um, become very relevant in a smart city context. You know, people have been saying that, you know, big tech companies, are, you know, are they the Trojan horse of smart cities, where um, private companies that promise better urban governance, but really they're just there to sell software and monetize the data. I mean, that's a very, that's, you know, reasonably extreme view, but, you know, if you're not managing um, that conversation. If you're not sharing with your um, with your community what's going on, there was a lot of concern because no one had visibility of the terms of the agreement between um, Sidewalk Labs and in the city of Toronto. And even and then, when they did finally disclose it after a lot of public pressure, it was a revised version that you know sort of seemed to kind of not show everything that had gone on beforehand um and there are questions around ip ownership you know if a if a tech company is creating new devices or processes for a city who should own that is it right that it is all owned by the vendor should should the city and the citizens have some kind of ownership of that material so there's lots of issues. I've probably gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but <laughs> there's certainly plenty of issues in that space. Yeah, no, I, I was going to certainly uh, raise uh, the Waterfront Toronto project, and I, I think we'll probably do another episode later on. I'll get a few people onto the onto a call, and we'll sort of dig into that. Um, just back to AI for a moment, and and I probably want to end on this one, Frith. I um, I've certainly um, observed. Uh, just in the last three months, about three months, um, a real significant level of interest and piloting of AI with, within cities. So cities themselves, you know, who are starting to sort of, you know, get some AI engines going over certain sort of, you know, data sets or data lakes or data puddles or whatever they are. <laughs> um, and I, I sort of, you know, I, I, I read a lot. I talk, talk to a lot of people and I, I, I I was getting a sense that, you know, yeah, it was sort of thinking about it, talking about, it, but not necessarily really diving in. But um, my, my sort of interpretation was, was obviously incorrect there. So um, wh where do we go with, uh, with, with ethics now? Because the power that AI has in essentially doing so much more with data that humans couldn't, you know, in terms of extracting value, um, generating insights. Um, I mean, you still then have to act on those insights uh, or make decisions based on what, what sort of has come from it. But um, this, this says to me that um, if, the, if the settings, <laughs> if the AI settings kind of aren't the right settings, you could potentially be in some strife here. So talk to me about how we, how we sort of make sure that... Um, uh, as AI advances, our our ethical settings are, are sort of correct. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting area. Um, I think what we're seeing is the need for some kind of governance and oversight of an AI program. So, looking at you know what what data is being 
ingested into the tool, what governance is in place around how the tool is developed and used, and what sort of monitoring is, is going on in the follow-up. Um, data quality is really key in all of this. If you're relying on, say, historical data only, you know, that may contain historical biases or it may, may contain inaccuracies that then produce results that don't reflect current realities. So you may have heard about the Amazon recruitment tool that was pulled because it relied on 10 years worth of historical data for recruitment purposes, most of which was, um, you know, most mostly were male males applying for those jobs, and so therefore it started to deprioritize uh, women's CVs, um, you know, causing all sorts of problems. Right? I mean, that's that's hopefully not the kind of world that we want to live on. That that AI will perpetuate those kind of biases. So the data needs to be managed. Um, that because th there's all these risks of bias and discrimination that can come through, and particularly when you've got uh, proprietary algorithms that, um, are, you know, that real black box approach where no one knows how the decisions are being made, um, that can have some some really severe repercussions. So, what we're seeing more and more is um, this concept of a, an ethical policy or framework. We've seen that in um, Estonia. Are developing one currently with um, EY's global AI leader. Um, there's certainly plenty of organisations looking at doing that. Um, I understand Smart Dubai has come up with an ethical framework. And I guess that the ethical bit is, is plugging the gap between, you know, what the law currently says, which, you know, in many instances hasn't kept up with the pace of technological change. So going beyond what the law says and what, you know, saying what what is what is the right thing to do here? Um, are we are we anticipating unintended consequences of the use of some of these tools? Oh, and we could go deep into that, uh, no doubt. But for for now, Frith, we we're, we're at time. Um, I I think we will certainly pivot to a more detailed episode. Uh, in the future, not too far away, around um, uh, AI, I want to get a little bit more into that. And as I mentioned, uh, would love for you to potentially join a, um, uh, a little case study roundtable discussion or on Waterfront Toronto. I'd like to pull that apart a little bit more. Um, but for now, um, my final question to you is around uh, 2019 and the year ahead. Um, what are you most excited about in this privacy and ethics space for 2019? Yeah, I guess the increased awareness and focus on these kinds of issues. I think as we start to see more of the big fines coming out of um, under GDPR, we'll start to sort of see what are the hot topics and I'm sure there'll be a lot of attention on all of those. I think the growing focus on AI ethics is is really interesting and it's an area that I'm, I'm doing quite a bit of work in and I think um, getting that public focus on these um, issues and making sure that all aspects of society are, are considered and the, the implications not just sort of the commercial aspects is really interesting and then in New Zealand we've got um, a privacy bill that will hopefully become law at some point later this year so that's also a really um, interesting space to watch on a local level because we will get mandatory data breach notification for the first time so again that increased public awareness i think is only a good thing well it seems like 2018 was a was a 
sort of foundational year and 2019 is only going to build on that in terms of uh, privacy and ethics. Um, Frith, thanks so much for joining us. Um, as I mentioned, we could have gone on for another hour at least, but uh, we, will, we will draw it to a close there. So thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. That was a really interesting chat. And for our listeners, uh, a reminder that you can subscribe to the Smart City Chronicles podcast uh, via Apple iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Uh, our website also smartcitieschronicles.com. And if you'd like to give some feedback or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, chronicles at anz.smartcitiescouncil.com. Um, thanks for joining us on this episode. And until next time, keep well. <laughs>